You're listening to a teaching series by Cross Culture Church of Christ. If you'd like any more information about our church, head to crossculture.net.au. Feel free to share this podcast with others, but please don't alter the content in any way. We hope you enjoy it. I still remember um, back in high school, which was a long time ago, uh, school would finish at three o'clock. I'd grab my bag, I'd run home, um, I'd burst through the door just in time for my favorite TV show, The Bold and the Beautiful. Now this um, show, I don't know if you've ever heard of The Bold and the Beautiful. It's It's a very trashy TV show that details the life of the Forrester family. Um, It's a story of tragedy, rivalry, and deceit. Here's a snapshot of the plot. Uh, Brooke and Ridge are in love. Brooke and Ridge break up because Ridge falls in love with Taylor. Brooke then marries Ridge's father, Eric, instead, has two children with Eric. They divorce. Ridge and Taylor break up. And then Brooke gets back together with Ridge. And that's only episode one. Why even watch the show like this? is beyond me, but what a complex family. Almost as complex as the family we see today. Let me catch you up on Jacob's story. So Jacob, he falls in love with a beautiful woman called Rachel. Um, He works for seven years for, for his uncle to marry her, only to realize he's been tricked by his uncle into marrying another woman, Rachel's sister, Leah, instead. Um, So he works another seven years for the wife he actually wanted. Um, Chapter 29, verse 30, then delivers the sad but not surprising news that Jacob loved Rachel more than his other wife, Leah. It's favoritism. Well, aren't you glad that our families are so functional, they're so kind, they're so loving, right? Right? No. (laughs) Complex families don't just exist on TV. Complex families don't just exist 4,000 years ago, no, they're very present in our lives too. So today we're going to see three things. We'll see a family longing for love, fighting for love, and finally finding true love. So let's pray as we begin. Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Help us to understand your word, we pray. Amen. Imagine yourself in Leah's shoes. She's the older sister of a beautiful woman, Rachel. Uh, Rachel's described as beautiful in form and appearance. She's stunning. What about Leah? Well, she's described as having weak eyes. Maybe she's cross-eyed. The passage suggests that she just doesn't have the physical beauty of of Rachel. and, And so she lives in her shadow. She's longing for love she can't seem to get. It's kind of like when one of your siblings gets all the praise from your parents, maybe they're the smart one, they're the talented one, they're the beautiful one, and you're like, hey, I'm over here, guys. Anyone see me? Imagine being ignored, um, overlooked, and forgotten. Everyone notices her, no one notices you. Imagine your own father thinking the only way you can find a spouse is he has to trick someone into marrying you. Imagine how Leah felt. 
And even if you did get married, the situation doesn't change. You're now ignored by your spouse, whose heart belongs to another. Once more, you find yourself longing for love you just can't seem to get. But now, we begin here by witnessing God's heart for the unloved. Chapter 29, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Where all eyes had been on Rachel, the Lord saw Leah. God looks especially on Leah, the girl no one wanted. God turns his affections and his concerns towards her and her situation. Um, Hated here, it carries the sense of being unloved. She's unloved by her husband, Jacob. And so what does God do? He's the one who loves Leah. He's the one that enables her to have children. You know, you might be thinking, why is this act of God opening Leah's womb? Why is that such a good thing? Why is that God's way of loving and blessing Leah? Well, remember in Genesis that children here, it continues God's promise. God promised Jacob in chapter 28 that his offspring would flourish, would spread, would bless the earth. So children here are evidence of this promise coming to pass. So God opening Leah's womb here, it shows God's love for the unloved. God here, he specifically chooses the unloved in his plans. So where the world will ignore the disadvantaged, where it ignores the weak and the vulnerable, God sees. I wonder if you've ever felt unloved. Perhaps it's like Leah living in the shadow of someone else in your family. All you hear is, she got 99.95, she got into medicine, she's so successful. Why can't you just be a little bit more like her? Perhaps you feel ignored by your spouse who seems to be growing more and more distant to you by the day. Or maybe all your hard work behind the scenes at church just goes completely unnoticed. Or maybe um, no one really seems interested in your CV as you apply for job after job. Even if no one else sees you, God sees you. And he looks especially upon the unattractive, the unwanted, the unloved with a deep affection. God meets that longing for love. And so Leah bears four children over the next few verses. But this is no simple happily ever after story. We don't just see a longing for love, but now we're going to see a family fighting for love. Chapter 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. The tables have turned. Where Leah used to be the one living in Rachel's shadow, now it's Rachel instead. She feels completely inadequate. And this inadequacy turns into envy. God's love for the unloved has only sparked competition, which turns toxic. Imagine being Jacob and your wife says to you, give me children or I'm going to die. It's a lot of pressure, right? I don't think that helps. She's forcing Jacob to do what he can't control. And so he rightly responds in verse 2, Am I in the place of God? If this is a tennis match, it's four children to love. 
Rachel, she's already up a double break in the first set. So Rachel has to break back. So what does she do? She kind of kids. So she takes matters into her own hands. And in verse three, she forces Jacob to make babies with her servant Bilhah instead. I don't know how Rachel thinks this solves her problem. I mean, she can't have kids, Leah can. So she tries to beat Leah by getting another woman to sleep with Jacob instead. He, she's bringing another woman into the picture. How does that make sense? No, she's losing sight. She's losing her grip on logic. She's becoming so fixated with just beating Leah. I wonder if you've ever become so fixated on beating someone that you begin to lose sight of the real issue. Um, Nat and I, we love playing board games. Uh, we love playing Catan, Monopoly Deal. We love playing board games with other people. And now let, let me just say that we're both very, very competitive, but actually become so competitive that Nat will try and beat me down so hard. She doesn't even care if someone else wins. So long as she beats me, that's enough for her. So what always happens is I never win, of course. She never wins. Someone else always wins, but somehow Nat's always happy just because she's beaten me. She always beats me, it kills me. Doesn't make sense though. Rachel doesn't care about Jacob. She doesn't care about the kids. She doesn't care about her servants. All she cares about is beating Leah. It's a fight for love. You know, you can tell a lot from Rachel's motivations through how she names her children. Chapter 30, verse eight, when her servant bears Jacob a child, Rachel says, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali, which means wrestling. It's all just a competition. Imagine being born into this family and, and, and knowing the only reason you exist is so that your mum can get one up over your stepmom. You know, when we talk about a fight for love, Rachel's only interested in self-love. She selfishly orchestrates this plan so she can feel loved again. The one who's seen to be contributing to the family through giving her husband Jacob children. But before you let Leah off the hook, she's no angel either. Look at how Leah names her children, chapter 29, verse 32. And Leah conceived and bore a son and said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She knows that this child's a gift from God, but instead of thanking God, instead of acknowledging God's love for her, what does she say? She says, now my husband will love me. Verse 34 is the same. Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons. And then chapter 30, verse 30, God has endowed me with good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I've borne him six sons. Now Leah's in a fight for love too. She's taking God's gifts to her and using these gifts simply as a means to winning Jacob's love. Remember, Rachel's the one that Jacob loves. So for Leah, having children's all about winning Jacob's heart and his affections away from Rachel. She's not so different to Rachel. You know, from the outside, these are two very different people. But fundamentally, they're both the same. Both are desperate 
for love. Both have a heart longing for love to be significant, to be precious, to matter in this world. And they idolize this love to the point of desperation and it leads them to compromise. The Bible calls this idolatry, where a need for love so grips our hearts that we're willing to give up everything for it. And often it has this tendency to spin out of control. You know, maybe we're so busy fighting for love that we'll compromise on who we date, who we seek to marry, just so we can feel special and loved by someone, by anyone. You might remember a 1990s boy band called the Backstreet Boys. Uh, One of their most popular songs is called As Long As You Love Me. I'll spare you the pain of singing it for you, uh, but I want to read to you a line of the song, which goes, I don't care who you are, what you did, where you're from, as long as you love me. Can you relate to these lyrics? Doesn't matter who, as long as you're loved by someone, that's all that matters. Or maybe we're so busy fighting for our boss's attention, our recognition at work, that we're even willing to cut down our colleagues, gossip behind their backs just to get that next promotion. And all of this comes from the heart cry, if I can just get this, then my life will be complete. Then I'll finally be happy. Who or what is that for you? I'll give you a moment to pause and and think about what would go in that blank space right there. We're constantly fighting for love. So when Leah sees Rachel having two sons through her servant Bilhah, what does Leah do? Well, this fight for love only continues. So she tries to extend her lead over Rachel by doing exactly what Rachel did. Leah gets her servant Zilpah to make babies with with Jacob as well. And through Zilpah, Leah gets another two. So now by verse 13, the score is 6-2. So Leah's taken the first set, yeah? And she shoves it down Rachel's throat. She says, happy am I, for women have called me happy. This all comes to a head in the next section in verse 14, where the two wives make a a strange deal. Leah will hand over her son's mandrakes to Rachel in order, uh, in exchange for being able to sleep with Jacob. It's believed here that these mandrakes, they could magically enhance fertility. Do you see how these, both these women, they're just taking matters into their own hands. It's not about trusting in the blessing that God promised Jacob. It's just about winning. And at this stage, you begin to realize they both want what the other has. Rachel wants children that Leah is able to have. And Leah wants the affection from Jacob that Rachel has. Both think that children will solve everything. What's clear here is the Bible doesn't support polygamy at all. I mean, Genesis chapter 2 has made it very clear that God designed marriage as one man and one woman coming together as one flesh. And it's not just this story here, but time and time again, we see how polygamy just breeds comparison, favoritism, how it tears families apart. 
And think about it, where, where is Jacob in this fight for love? He's just a pawn in the hands of these two scheming women and he does absolutely nothing about it. He's entirely passive. He, he allows his wives to compare, to fight, and all he does in this chapter is breed. He has no say in naming the children. He doesn't choose who he sleeps with at all. All he does is breed with four different women. Now, you see, a longing for love has turned into a fight for love between two warring wives over one passive husband. But lastly, our passage doesn't just show us how we long for love, how we fight for love, but it also shows us where true love is found. You might be asking at this stage, where are all the heroes? And it's a good reality check for us because often we approach the Bible just looking for a set of morals, like Jacob was a good guy, could you be a bit more like Jacob, please? But we see here, Jacob doesn't do anything in this chapter. He doesn't step in to reconcile his fighting wives. He just sits back and lets it all happen before his eyes. What about Rachel? Well, she just fights to take back the spotlight from her sister Leah. And Leah, she just uses her children to win the love and affection of her husband who doesn't love her. Where are the heroes? Well, clearly that's not the point. The point of this narrative is not just to pick a person and be like them. No, actually, if anything, it's the opposite. Don't be like any of them. But through this passage, we see someone else at work behind the scenes. Verse 22 says, God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph. At every step of the way, even though these women, they're fighting for the love and the affections of their husband, it's God who sees, it's God who hears, and it's God who remembers. God remembers Rachel. This remembering here is more than just a cognitive, oh yeah, I remember her. No, when God remembers, it's an active thing. He lovingly acts on their behalf. This whole time, God has seen, he's heard, he's remembered the yearnings for love in their hearts. And so out of God's grace, he enables Rachel to have her very own child. You know, you might have missed it. But through this passage, God's been at work. And the clue is in the names. See, the names don't just give away the sinful, deceitful motives of Leah and Rachel. But they also give away God's love through this messed up family. See, if you scan through the names, you might recognize that they're actually the names of the tribes of Israel. It's exactly through this situation, through these children, that God will establish a nation for himself. And so it means that these names are not just uh, markers of a rivaling family. They're also markers of a redeemed family. One created by God through sinful people. That's where true love is found. Through all their scheming, their planning, their deception, God is fulfilling his promise. Remember, God promised that these people would multiply, they'd spread, they'd bless the world. And here, without even a moment's notice, we get 12 children. 
And it's through these children that God will build his nation. They find love, not through the fight, but through God's generous provision. God sees this broken, this messed up family with one father and four mothers. And he says, this is the family I'll choose to be my family. You know, the family sounds more like the bold and beautiful than the family of God, right? Out of all the families God could have chosen, what kind of God would choose this family who disregard his gifts, who constantly fight for the affections of other people and say, this is how I'm going to build my kingdom. And actually, you begin to realize that though this family is dysfunctional, this is God's family. And this is the type of family he loves to work in. And throughout history, these are the types of family he's only really ever worked in. You know, imagine as kids and, and you're sitting on your parents' lap as they uh, tell you about your family history. And they say to you, kids, you came from a family of one father and four mothers who just made you out of rivalry and competition, who only ever wanted you to serve their selfish. What a lovely story to tell your kids. But it shows who the hero is. It's God's grace triumphing over and through these most tragic circumstances. These are the origins of God's people. And this is what it means to find true love. You know, as you scan through all the names of these children, there's one name that stands above the rest. It's so subtle, you might miss it. In chapter 29, verse 35, it's the name Judah. Um, as Leah names her children, it's selfish, selfish, selfish. And then suddenly it says, this time I will praise the Lord. And it's from this tribe, this family, Judah, that God's blessing is fulfilled. The Messiah, the Savior, Jesus Christ will come from this very tribe. But look at how God does it. You know, you would think that if God would choose his Savior, his King, it would be from the best pedigree from the first child of the loved wife. But no, God chooses his king from the fourth child of the unloved wife. Just an average middle child from the girl nobody wanted. And even when Jesus himself comes into the world, Isaiah says that Jesus had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus was unwanted like Leah. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. Jesus is the unloved one. Jesus is the one who's ignored, who's despised, who's rejected by the world. God chooses this messed up, this complex family, because it says something about his heart, and it says something about his saviour. No, you see, Jesus stepped into the very thing these women were trying to avoid. Jesus was willing to be despised, to be rejected, and he became the unloved one in order to truly love us. And in the utter loneliness of the cross, he pays for all these sins of competitiveness and rivalry so that we could find in him a security, a love, no matter what anyone else thinks of us whether we're the most loved, the most seen, the most fertile, the most successful, 
or if we're absolutely none of these things. No, this story, it showcases God's passionate pursuit of the unloved. God sees, he, he loves, he remembers us in Christ through the descendant of the fourth son of the unloved wife. God made a way to love the unlovely and free us from this obsessive desire for love. As we close, I just want to speak to those of you who might have struggled to have kids or might have wanted more kids but couldn't or those who wanted kids but might not have got married. What's clear in this passage is that God is the one who opens and closes wombs. And it can feel unfair that God's placed these longings in our heart only to sometimes leave these longings, these good desires, unfulfilled. But what's also clear in this passage is that whether these women had children or not, that didn't determine their value. God didn't love them because they were able to have kids or not. No, God loved them because he loved them. We need to hear this, that God sees, he remembers, he loves us in Christ regardless of our family situation. He loves us regardless of whether we'll ever get to hear the words mum or dad. I love what Laurie Wilbert writes, uh, who herself experienced childlessness and three painful miscarriages. She says, sometimes God says to a man and a woman, this is sufficient. The two of you together, because I'm near you and Christ has come, is enough. Not second best, not runner up, not settled for, not we'll take what we can get. This is sufficient because God is in it and he is near and every promise in his son is yes and amen. Good and enough. Good enough. Such is the love of God for you in Christ who sees, hears and remembers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you're the one who truly loves the unloved in Christ. Lord, as we reflect on our lives, we see the different ways we long for love. We see the different ways we fight for love. Lord, help us to lay down this fight as we instead find true love in your son, Jesus, the descendant of the fourth son of the unloved wife, the one himself rejected and despised, who became unloved for us so that in him we could find a love that would truly satisfy our souls. We love you, Jesus, in your great name. Amen.